0: But if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, and this evening we're going to look at verses 13 uh, to uh, 17. Uh, So that's page uh, 967 in the Church Bible and in the large print, page 1503. Now in our church, and in most churches, uh, there are services that we have uh, that are services where we commit uh, in some way before other people. So for example, at a wedding, you have two people that commit to each other before each other and God that they'll be married as husband and wife for as long as they both shall live. Now at a baby Thanksgiving, uh, you have a baby uh, and you give thanks to the baby, but the parents at a baby thanksgiving uh, dedicate themselves to God to bring up this child uh, in the ways of the Lord. We have baptisms where people publicly declare their commitment to following Jesus Christ. We have in our church, every time we have new members, we all stand and we say our membership commitments. We say what we are going to commit to as members to each other and to God. Now, my uh, experiences of these kinds of services usually are pretty disastrous. I'll tell you uh, a few things that have happened to me. Uh, So, first of all, when I got married, uh, well, when I I got engaged, I dropped the wedding ring at Newquay and it almost rolled down a cliff. But when I got married, as I was about to put it on Paula's finger, I dropped the ring again and had to scramble around the floor to pick it up. Now, when it came to the baby dedication, I didn't drop the baby, Uh, But when I uh, did my first, my baptism was fine, but when I first baptised somebody, I struggled to immerse this girl in the water because her legs went up from underneath her. She had this uh, dress on that was going everywhere and I was trying to get her in the water and it was totally embarrassing. It was the worst thing ever. I've got over all of those mistakes now, uh, so I've not had anything like that happen here except for... My induction service, which was right here in this church, and I stood there and my first public reading as an inducted pastor, and I read the wrong passage of the Bible. Uh, it was uh, really quite embarrassing. I remember Tim having to come down and tap me on the shoulder and say no, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what to do with this thing that I'm supposed to be working with. So all of the things like that that have happened for me have always been uh, total disasters. But the purpose of these moments are to publicly declare a commitment before God and others. And although they haven't always worked out for me, I've always made those commitments. And one of those services, which I've just mentioned, is an induction service, where we we call a man uh, to uh, pastor a church, and he is publicly committing to minister in that church before God and makes uh, various promises. Now this evening, as we look at the baptism of Jesus, we see something like this. You could even say that tonight's passage is Jesus' induction service. There are Old Testament examples of God setting people aside and making a public declaration so that people would know that they are God's person for this time and for this task. An example is Jesus' namesake, Joshua. I say namesake because Joshua and Jesus have the same name. Both names mean God saves. And when Joshua in the Old Testament came to succeed Moses, Israel were about to enter the promised land. And God wanted people to know Joshua is the leader. He is the one that I have appointed as leader of my people, to lead them into the promised land. And they were on the banks of the the river Jordan, and God announced that he would make Joshua the leader and show all Israel that this was the case. And so in Joshua chapter 3 and verse 7, it says this, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you, As I was with Moses. And God did this by parting the River Jordan and the people walking through the other side. With this event in the River Jordan, God showed Israel, and Israel knew that Joshua was the leader that God had appointed for his people. And Matthew, throughout his Gospel so far, from the right, at the very beginning, right up till now, has been showing us in various ways that Jesus Christ is the King. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one chosen by God to save his people from their sins. We've seen that throughout the birth narratives. He, through we've, we've said this already before. Through his history, he's the Son of God and he's the Son of David. Through the homage of the wise men, through the hatred of King Herod, and last week through the heralding of John the Baptist. All of this tells us Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is king. But as we got to John, uh, Matthew chapter 3, we haven't seen Jesus in Matthew's gospel for 30 years. There's been this gap. Now Luke has a, a short episode of his childhood, but Matthew moves us 30 years up to this point and nothing has been said. So has anything happened in 30 years that would disqualify Jesus from right now being the king? No, nothing has happened. And tonight, as Joshua stood at the banks of the river Jordan and was announced as leader by the Jordan opening. So Jesus Christ stands in the river Jordan and by the heavens opening is announced, this is the king. This is my leader. And it's written like this and shown like this so that everybody would know this is the King, Jesus Christ. So let's look at how that happens in Matthew chapter 3 and verses 13 to 17. So John the Baptist, we're in the midst of his ministry here and it says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized By you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so. Now, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We see here an induction service. There is a man who is committed to serve God, and this commitment is made before God and the people that were there. This is the baptism of Jesus Christ. And we have here not just Jesus... But the Godhead, the Trinity, committing to the salvation of mankind through Jesus Christ. Now I've used the word there, Trinity, uh, just to very briefly explain what that means. The Trinity is how we describe God as one God in three persons. The three persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit – and those three persons make the one God. That's the Godhead. So the Father isn't the Son, and the Son isn't the Spirit, and the Spirit isn't the Father, and the Spirit isn't the Son, but they're all one God. Each person makes the Godhead. Now, it's, a, it's confusing for us to fully grasp. It's a bit of a mystery to us, but that is what the Bible teaches us about who God is. And in this uh, section of the Bible here, we clearly see the Godhead at work, committing to the salvation of mankind. So in verse 13, we read, Then Jesus came. So at the time of the ministry of John the Baptist, at that moment, Jesus came. While John the Baptist was baptising people, we saw last time, in their multitudes, loads and loads of people were coming to the Jordan River, confessing their sins, and being baptised by John. At this time... When this was happening, Jesus Christ came from Galilee to the Jordan. It was about 17 miles. And Jesus came all that way for the express purpose of being baptised by John the Baptist. By nobody else but John. And Jesus was dedicated to go all that way to be baptised by John. Now John was baptising people uh, following confession of sin for repentance. He was baptising Sinners for repentance. And so the question must be in your mind, why is it that Jesus Christ was baptised? I mean, throughout the Gospel so far, we've seen, haven't we, in the virgin birth, that Jesus Christ is is God in the flesh. He is sinless. He is completely perfect, completely holy. He has no sin to confess, no sin to turn from and repent to. In a sense, you could even argue no need to be baptised. So why is Jesus coming to John the Baptist, who is baptizing people because of sin, why is Jesus going there? Well, in fact, John has a similar question in verse 14, doesn't he? John, it says, tried to deter him. And he said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Well, there's two reasons here why John doesn't want to baptize Jesus. The first one, he says, is, I need to be baptised by you. In other words, John realises he needs to be baptised by Jesus Christ. Not necessarily going under the water, but of the baptism that he's been talking about that Jesus brings of the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, John the Baptist was not perfect. He was a sinner. And John the Baptist was telling people to turn, uh, to repent, to repent. So turn to God because the kingdom of God is coming and Jesus is coming and he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And John says, I need this too. And so when Jesus comes and says, John, I want you to baptize me, John says, well, no, Jesus, I need what you bring. I need the Holy Spirit. I need the baptism of fire, the the baptism of being purified, being made more like Jesus. So that's the first reason John needs to be baptised by Jesus but secondly John just doesn't understand why Jesus comes to him. John's was a baptism of repentance for sinners. Jesus isn't a sinner and so he says well you you come to me you come to me for for my baptism Jesus. You don't need my baptism. Well why was Jesus baptised? Well Jesus tells John why in verse 15. It says Jesus replied let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Why was Jesus baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that Jesus Christ always does what is right, which is what his Father wants him to do. And the Father wants Jesus Christ to be baptized. So the first thing we can say is, well, the Father wanted him to do it. So Jesus was baptised because it was the will of the Father. But also, there's more to it than that. You see, Jesus Christ was a man. He was fully man and fully God. And as a man had to obey God's law, as all men did, and God, through John the Baptist, was calling people, calling men, to be baptised. And as God, speaking through John, was calling men to do that, Jesus Christ obeyed that call. Jesus Christ was going to be baptised. So he, and he says, it, let it be so now, i.e. when this ministry is going on, when John is preparing the way for me to come, God wants me to be baptised by you so that I can identify with and approve the baptism of John. But it goes even deeper than that. You see, Jesus Christ's baptism was unlike any other. And it wasn't just because of the heavens opening. You see, when everyone else was baptised, in verse 6 of chapter 3, we read that they confessed their sins. Well, Jesus didn't confess his sin like everybody else. Jesus had no sin to confess. In fulfilling all righteousness, Jesus Christ obeys in a way that nobody can. He does everything that is right. He fulfills all righteousness. Now we could say, if you, if you wanted to try and tell me how good you are, that you might fulfill some righteousness. You, you do some things right. But nobody has fulfilled all righteousness. No one done, has, has done what is good all of the time. We're all sinners. But Jesus Christ, he's totally different. He's totally unique. He has never sinned. But he takes his place in the Jordan And he stands with sinners and identifies with them. And that's the first big lesson about the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus shows that the Son identifies him with sinners. The baptism of the Son identifies him with sinners. Jesus Christ being baptized, he stands where sinners stand. He stands in the place of sinners and, as he is baptised, he shows all sinners what he will do for them. You see, for everyone else who was baptised at this time, by John, they were baptised to picture being cleansed from sin and risen to a new life following God. But when Jesus was baptised, he was showing how he would die for sins and be buried And rise again to give new life to all who would follow him. You see there was no sin for Jesus to be cleansed of. But Jesus was showing how he would die, be buried and rise again to save us from our sins. He was showing how he would stand in the place of sinners. Not just in the Jordan but on the cross. And in doing so he was committing to this plan. To save people from their sins as he was baptised. So as he was being baptised, he was committing to what he was going to do on the cross. He was saying, this is what I will do. I am committing before God and everybody else that I will pay the penalty for sin. Now we read Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 describes what Jesus would do to save us. He would bear our sins. But notice verse 12 of Isaiah 53. It said, For he bore the sin of many and was numbered with the transgressors. And in standing in the water, he was numbered with the transgressors. He was standing where sinners stand. And he says, I identify with them. I die for them. I take their place. I'm committing to this task. Jesus Christ was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sins of many. He stands where sinners stands and publicly commits to bear their sin in his death and resurrection. One writer says this, which is helpful to understand what's going on here. It says, He has come to undergo John's baptism of repentance, not because he is a sinner needing repentance, but because he is the servant son whose decreed task is to identify with sinners and to bear their sins in his own person. Jesus Christ commits to the work publicly, but then the Holy Spirit anoints him. So at the end of verse 15, uh, John, uh, the Baptist, it says, consented. Jesus was baptised, and then something amazing happens. Never before or since, in any baptism, has this happened. Heaven opens. Now this is not the heavens, as in uh, the stars and the, and the planets. This is literally heaven, i.e. the dwelling place of God. How did it happen? What did it look like? We're not told. We don't know. But we are told that heaven opened. And it's a wonderful thing, you know. Because after Adam sinned, the first man after he sinned and, we are, and, and, and was t- cast out of God's presence, heaven is closed. But Jesus Christ, the man, the new Adam, he comes and opens it up. Jesus Christ is a man unlike any other man. He is righteous and he has access to heaven. And this is the key. Jesus Christ is the man who opens heaven for us. He opens heaven for us. And when heaven opens here, the Holy Spirit comes. He comes Visibly as a dove, and showed that Jesus is the one to open heaven for us. That is, he is the Messiah, which means anointed one. You see, the Holy Spirit anoints Jesus and shows that he is the Messiah. In fact, John the Baptist uh, said this in John's Gospel, uh, in John chapter 1 and verse 32 to 33, he says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove. And remain on him, but the ones who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, John says, the one who uh, you see the Spirit come upon, that's the Messiah, that's the Savior, that's the King. And here we see Jesus Christ. He's the one. The Spirit comes; it dwells on him. God is showing everybody, this is the Messiah. This is the king. Now in the Old Testament, people who were set apart for acts of service were often anointed with oil. Sometimes in the Old Testament, we read of the Holy Spirit coming upon people for a specific job. So for example, in Exodus chapter 31, there's uh, these two characters with funny names, Bezalel and Oholiab. And they were uh, tasked with building the tabernacle, and the Bible says that God gave them the Holy Spirit to equip them to do the job. See, the Holy Spirit anoints, showing us who is doing the job, and then equips so that we can do the job. And that's what we see with Jesus here. You see the uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit sets him apart for service. And it sets him apart in two ways. Firstly, as we've just seen, it shows this is the one, this is the Messiah. But secondly, it sets him apart for the specific job that he is called to do. You see, the Holy Spirit comes on the man Jesus Christ to equip him for the task ahead. Now, there's no, by the way, here kind of breach in the Trinity. Uh, You know, why does Jesus need the Holy Spirit if Jesus is God? Remember, Jesus is fully man and fully God. Even as a baby, he was fully God and had all the attributes of God. But yet, as a man, which was a new thing, Jesus needed the power of the Holy Spirit to complete his mission. And what is the mission that Jesus was given? The mission was the salvation of mankind. And the dove highlights this. Why was it a dove? Well, because, you know, there's no Old Testament references to the, the Holy Spirit being symbolized as a dove. It's a new thing, in a way, here. But the dove is in the Old Testament. First of all, in the book of Genesis, we see the dove. Uh, In one sense, uh, lots of uh, writers see the dove in chapter 1 and verse 2, where the Spirit of God hovers over the waters before he creates. Well, some people describe that like a dove in that he's hovering, but where there's definitely a dove is in Genesis chapter 8. Noah, after the flood, sends a dove uh, to go and see if the waters have receded. And if you remember the story, eventually uh, the dove comes back with an olive branch, which is uh, showing that the waters had receded and they could go out of the ark. You see, the dove was seen here as a sign of new life or new creation. And that's what Jesus came to bring, wasn't it? To bring new life and, and creation. But for Jesus, this new life came through sacrifice. Sacrifice. And that's the second aspect of the dove because a dove was also used as a sacrifice for sin. It was used as a sacrifice for sin if someone was poor and couldn't afford to present a lamb to bear the punishment for them. And so the new life that Jesus Christ brings comes through sacrifice. It comes through the sacrifice of himself for all those who are too poor to pay for it themselves. And because of sin... That is all of us. The anointing of the Spirit sets him apart as Messiah, affirming him, equipping him for what he is about to do. And it says the Holy Spirit alighted on him. That means that it didn't just come on his shoulder and then fly away again. It meant it stayed. It remained on him. And the Holy Spirit remained on Jesus, equipping him for the work all the way till that mission was completed. And he died on the cross and he rose again. So there's a visible sign of the Holy Spirit, but then in verse 17, there is a verbal sign. And the verbal sign is the voice of the Father, which declares him as Savior. The anointing of the Holy Spirit and the voice of the Father, by the way, happen at exactly the same time. It's all one event. So as the Holy Spirit is coming down, uh, we read in verse uh, 17, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him... I am well pleased. The voice from heaven is the Father, and that's obvious because he's saying this is my son. And he makes three important declarations. First of all, he says, This is my son. Uh, This comes from actually Psalm chapter two and verse seven, which says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son, today I have become your father. Psalm chapter two, verse seven. And in that psalm, it's talking about the coming king who will rule the whole earth. And the father is saying, this one is that king. This is the son who will reign. This is my king. This is Jesus. So this is my son. And then secondly, it says, whom I love. Now this love is a unique love. As in that the father loves the son especially. Now Jesus... Is, is altogether lovely. And the, and the Father loves him perfectly. Everything about Jesus, the Father loves. He loves him specially. And then in the, the final declaration, with him, I am well pleased. There's a reference again here to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. In Isaiah chapter 42, uh, it's another servant song And Isaiah is describing the servant of the Lord. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Notice there, this is the one whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And here is Jesus Christ as the spirit comes on him, and the Father saying, I am well pleased. It's the same as saying, I delight in you, Jesus. I'm delighted with you, and in this declaration we see that everything about Jesus is pleasing to God. there's nothing in Jesus that is displeasing to God. It's that you can say it's similar to the end of creation, God said it was very good. Everything about Jesus God is pleased with because there is no sin in Jesus. there's nothing displeasing about Jesus, and that can be said of no one else God. cannot be pleased with anybody else because of sin. But he's pleased with with Jesus. All the other kings of Israel in the Old Testament that were anointed have failed. They were anointed, but they were not well-pleasing. But Jesus Christ is the King who is pleasing to the Father all the time. This is my Son whom I love. In him, him alone, him only, I am well-pleased. And because of this, God the Father is pleased also with what Jesus is about to do. His mission to pay the penalty of sin is pleasing to God because the sacrifice for sin is perfect too. And as Jesus here acts out in his baptism, Isaiah 53, in being the suffering servant, the Father declares Isaiah 42, this is the servant in whom I delight. So here we see God at work as a trinity, The baptism of the Son, the anointing of the Spirit, the voice of the Father. Uh, One uh, writer, uh, J.C. Ryle, he says uh, something which I thought was a great way of describing it. He says, it was the Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. See, at the beginning, let us make man. Here, they're committing to save man. So, that's the baptism of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean for us? Well, there are some amazing truths in this passage, which I want to just press home before we finish and apply to us. First of all is this. What happens in the baptism of Christ pictures how we should respond to God. You see, Jesus Christ going into the waters of baptism committed to the will of the Father. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to fulfill that mission of dying on the cross, Jesus said, thy will be done. And we see the same thing here at the baptism. And when we become Christians, we die to self and we rise again to a new life with a new plan, with a new king, and we say to that king, to God, your will be done. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, are we dying to self or are we saying, My will be done. Look at the commitment of Jesus here to do the hardest thing anyone has ever had to do, which is die for sinners. You know, last week we said we have a new king now. Our allegiance is to him. Maybe consider where you're struggling right now in saying thy will be done. Secondly, we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when we become Christians, and so we are equipped to do the will of the Father too. You see, God has given you all that you need to serve him as you ought. When I've just said we need to commit to God and say your will be done, there's no excuse for a Christian to say, well, I can't do that, because God has given us everything we need in the Holy Spirit to equip us to obey him. And in terms of, of serving God in the church, there's a point here too, isn't there? No one is too old, too young, too bad, or too anything. There, now there's wisdom needed, of course, but the Holy Spirit gives us what we need to do what God calls us to do in the church as well. And finally, and this is where uh, the climax is for me, this is the most wonderful truth of all, Christian you are now God's child who he loves and he's delighted with you. You see Jesus Christ has died on the cross in our place. He he fulfilled the mission that in this baptism he committed to do. He went all the way to Calvary. He died on the cross and he died in the place of sinners. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He made him Jesus who knew no sin To be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus Christ has died on the cross in our place. He has taken our sin and he has borne it on the cross. All of the things we've done wrong has been placed on Jesus. And then he credits us with everything that made him delightful to God. Everything that God said, I am well pleased with you, everything about that has been credited to us. So when God looks at the Christian, he can say, with you I am well pleased. Isn't that amazing? Because I do not feel very pleasing to God. I do not feel very delightful to God. But yet still, because Jesus died for my sin, God looks at me and says, I'm delighted with you. That's an amazing truth, isn't it? Amazing truth that should encourage us. We can thank God that Jesus Christ fulfilled that mission. What he said he would do in his baptism, he did at Calvary. And you know, in Genesis chapter 1, the Godhead worked together to create the world. And here we see them working together to save the world. And there's a new creation now. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That starts now. You know, spiritually, we, we become new. New people different people, following a new king. But one day, one day, that'll be a new creation physically too, where in new bodies we will be with our Saviour for all eternity, worshipping him perfectly. No sin, no suffering, no sickness, none of that. And every time God looks at us, he can say, I'm well pleased with you. And you know, when we're in heaven, it'll be so much easier to believe it. But for now, and perhaps for all eternity, I believe this will be true, we'll always be wondering how on earth God could have such amazing grace for us. And so we're going to close with our final song, which we learnt earlier on. And we can say with, from our hearts as we look at these things, indeed, how can it be? How can it be that God would stand in my place and plead my cause and right my wrongs? Because I'm a sinner, but yet God loves us so much he sent Jesus to die. So let's stand as we close and sing, How Can It Be?